0: mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In our sermon today, we're going to reflect on four parts in a hymn that is coming up at the end. So Timothy Peterson wrote a hymn that our choir will be singing at the end of the service, and it's a reflection on Luther's experience of God. His experience of the God he feared and hated transformed into the God he loved and cherished. Beginning with his troubled heart, as he looks at the words of Romans chapter 1, and Luther wrote the following, he said, It isn't enough that we miserable sinners, lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed, by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments. Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel, and through the gospel threaten us with his righteousness and his wrath? This is Luther reflecting on where he was at around 1517 in his introduction to his Latin works. He's talking about his experience of God growing up, all the way into adulthood, that he was seeing in the Bible and in God himself and his prayers, a God who was never satisfied. When he read that phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, he thought it meant that the gospel was showing us A righteousness that we could never meet, a righteousness that could never be ours, a righteousness that, in fact, made God so righteous he could never have time or patience for sinners like him. A theologian named A.W. Tozer wrote a rather famous statement in his introduction to a book called the knowledge of the holy. He says, quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. (laughs) What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, not, it is not what At any time, we might say or do, but what we know deep in our heart, what we conceive God to be like. So deep in your heart, what do you perceive God to be like? When you pray, when you close your eyes, when you face those moments of crisis that trouble you down to your very core, and you turn to this God, what do you see? In Hebrew, they conceived of worship with a phrase that meant the face of God. So when they talked about worship in the Old Testament, it was always about the face of God. What it means to be before God, it's often translated as coming to stand before God or in the presence of God, but it literally means in the face of God. When God looks at you, when you look at God, that is your worship. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 said they heard the Lord God walking around in the, present, walking around in the wind of the day and they hid themselves from the face of the Lord. And the first commandment says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There shall be no other gods before my face. Now in other religions, it was similar that they would think of the presence of God as the face of God. They would picture God in terms of the idols that they created and those idols would have faces. Faces with eyes, nose, mouth. And symbolically, they would express what they thought that God was like by how they shaped the face of the God. So you could have a God that was fierce, angry. You could have a God that was benevolent and kind. You could have a God that was jovial and laughing. You could have a God that was, in fact, afraid. When Luther read Romans 1 then, He discovered a face of God that he thought was disgusted. And so he felt guilt. He felt shame. And left on our own, that is the proper understanding. Left to ourselves, we should feel shame. We should be afraid. We should feel bad. And we should not have the courage to look God in the eyes. And that's the way we are by nature. By nature, we don't like eye contact with human beings to begin with. I mean, I don't know how you are with sitting down and looking somebody in the eyes when you talk with them. But for most of us, it's it's uncomfortable. You have to learn and train yourself to do that. But even more so with God. Psalm 27 says, You have said, seek my face, and so my heart has sought you. When Luther would come to those passages which told him to go to God, to pray to God, to seek God, for him it was not an experience of joy and happiness, then it was was torment. And this is where he left his thoughts with Romans chapter 1. So we'll sing... Uh, the first verse to our hymn on page 5 before continuing with the gospel. Luther again writes, I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans, but thus far there had stood in my way, not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter one, the justice of God is revealed in the gospel. I hated that word justice of God, which by the use and custom of all my teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically, as referring to formal or active justice as they call it, that justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love, no, rather, I hated the just God who punishes sinners. Have you ever had a boss who is never satisfied? Someone that's above you, someone whose respect you want, either for the work that you're doing to get acknowledged, or simply someone you want to love and to please? And maybe you've had that boss who, no matter how hard you work, how much time you put in, week after week, they're not going to ever tell you it's good enough or they're satisfied. How much more detrimental can that be when it's in relationships of love, in relationships of family, in relationship with God? And so for Luther, his fear led to anger because it begins with being scared, being ashamed that you can't satisfy God. And then that leads, sooner or later, and every human experiences this on some level, a frustration. A frustration that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much time you put in, you even become a monk where you dedicate 24 hours a day, praying seven times every day, doing works of sacrifice and leading worship and praying for everyone, even to the point where Luther starved himself, he whipped himself, he beat himself, still unsatisfied. So you get frustrated, you get angry because you can never make God happy. And that's what Luther was taught. He was taught to keep trying harder. It wasn't until around 1517 and years after that, that he discovered something new his teachers hadn't shown him. He started lecturing on Romans and the Psalms and Galatians. And in dedicating his time to the word, just letting the word speak, putting out all the teachers and all the upbringing and his own experience and just letting the words speak, he saw, especially in the Psalms, a God whose justice is not poured out against the person with a troubled conscience, but rather his justice is something that saves the person who's troubled. That it's meant for people like Luther who are genuine in their seeking after God and wanting To have his approval. The Spirit used these times and these passages to change Luther. Luther saw the hypocrisy in the religious system that he had grown up under, that it was filled with hypocrisy. The indulgences that they were selling to people, trying to claim that this would satisfy God, or the extra works and prayers to Mary and the Lord's Prayer, that that would satisfy God. And yet the leaders all the time were sitting back and getting richer and fatter. No, he discovered a secret God, a hidden God that hadn't been there before, that all of the sudden came to light. So about that same time, he came to see Romans in a new way. And he says, all at once I felt I had been born again and entered into paradise. He read this passage again and it said, "'I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The righteous shall live by faith.'" Instead of his desire to try to please God with his extra works, he learned that it was enough just to trust God to take him at his word, and there's a God behind the curtain that's smiling at those who trust in Jesus, that's pleased, that's loving. So the Lord guided Luther to the gospel truth. We'll sing the second stanza of the hymn, page 5. It's fascinating to me that the place where Luther seemed to come to his deepest understanding of the gospel was not actually in Romans or Galatians, which came later on, but that he says was in the Psalms. That in the Psalms, Luther would see that hidden God that he had missed for so many years. In 1528, he wrote about the Psalms in his introduction, he said the Psalms ought to be a precious and beloved book, if for no other reason than this. It promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly, and pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom, then it may well be called a little Bible. He goes on to describe the human heart like a ship on the sea that's tossed this way and that way. So the waves of of life come pounding in the storms and lightning and fear and miserable conditions aboard that ship, throw your heart into uncertainty. They throw you this way and that way till you're, you're beaten up from the storms of life. But he says, In that storm, the psalms are still there. That no matter how bad the storm seemed to you on the ship, the psalms keep on preaching God's goodness. They keep on praying. They keep on praising. They keep on thanking. They keep on coming back to the God whose righteousness is to deliver you from the storm, not to cast you into it. He says, In the Psalms you will see your own self, for here it is true the saying, Know thyself, by which you can know yourself as well as the God who created all things. One of the Psalms that was Martin Luther's favorite was Psalm 46. The psalm which says that God is our strength and refuge, a very present help in trouble. And though the sea be moved and the earth give way, the mountains be thrown into the sea, though the waters roar and rage at us, we have a city of peace. A mighty fortress is our God. And he wrote the hymn that we'll sing at the end, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, seeing that in the psalms, There is a true righteousness and salvation that protects us because those experiences are so real for us. The experience of doubt, the experience of fear, the experience of anger is so real for us. The experience of uncertainty that we need to grapple with that, not run away from it, not try to find a God who who pretends like none of that even exists. But in the Psalms, there's a God who is totally honest. And we can be totally honest, too. And yet he never will leave us. He'll never forsake us. Though devils all the world should fill, eager to devour us, they have nothing won because the kingdom is ours. We'll sing the third stanza of the hymn. Oh, In the choir piece, we'll be singing. You'll notice the words are printed for you in the service folder. And when you get to the third stanza, it's called the bridge. And I'm, I'm not a music expert, so Timothy could have quite a whole sermon about the bridge. But I did look this up to see, well, what is the bridge? And the bridge is what connects two pieces, parts of the song together. So it's, it's a part of the song that might have a little bit of a different melody to it something that throws you off from the regular rhythm, and yet it always brings you back to the chorus, back to the main theme. Is that close enough? But I thought it was interesting to think about where that is in this hymn, the bridge, and how the bridge is right in there in verse three to get you from the troubled anxiety and anger of not knowing whether God loves you, to the final chorus, which is the joy. Because we all have to cross that bridge. And sometimes it feels like maybe we've gone halfway. And sometimes it feels like maybe we went, and then we went back to the fear and anger. But you are seeing in Luther and in the gospel a God on the other side who's calling to you, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden." But he's not just staying over there calling to you. In fact, he's gonna come across the bridge to where you're at in your anxiety and, and trouble, in your sins and guilt. It's the God who becomes incarnate. It's Jesus who becomes like us in every way, yet without sin, who faces the torments of persecution, who faces the pain of being forsaken, who faces the burden of our own sins and guilts on the cross. And from that moment on in his resurrection, he takes us across the bridge to show us a place where God is at total peace and harmony with us. God is in total approval of us. He's in total love for us. And so we come to that final verse of Luther's life, the chorus that he's singing in heaven with all the holy angels, the joy of each Christian. He says, at once I felt I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole scripture in a different light. And so for you too, this doesn't mean your feet have left the earth. It doesn't mean the troubles on the sea are going to cease. But it means that you can be in two places at once. You can be in the experience of a life that in outward view seems to not be working out, seems to not be going the way it should, or even inwardly you have doubts. And yet know that with Jesus in your heart, you're in heaven already. You can rejoice in every circumstance because what comes to our minds when we picture God is the most important thing about us. And this text, this day is trying to teach you that the spirit wants to transform your imagination from a God who is always disappointed with you. You're never measuring up. To a God who gave up his only son, sent him into the world to deliver you from those fears so you can know he's a father. And not just any type of father. He's the father that all of us wish we had in every way, who never lets us down and is true and true to being the father we need. This is the gospel that opens our eyes to see our Father's open arms. True love's embrace. Amen. We'll rise.